Welcome to the 37th episode of Cartoon Avatars. I'm your host, Logan Bartlett, and I am joined today by Rashad Asir, producer, occasional guest, regular TikTok guy. What's up, Logan? How are you doing, Rashad? I'm doing well. How are you? How's San Francisco? Good. Do you like my uh, attire? I, I, I'm dressed up. For people that are listening, I'm dressed up in a blazer, uh, looking much more formal uh, than normally the the hat and t-shirt look that I uh, I normally rock. We have uh, we have dinner with a bunch of our limited partners tonight, um, and I'm doing a little presentation on the state of the market that maybe next week I'll talk through. I don't know if we'll publish it or what. I haven't really thought about it. Been sort of finishing it up, but uh, yeah. I was actually wearing a full suit, and I felt like an asshole. Uh, you know, it, it's I sort of forget what attire is appropriate, and so I switched into jeans. So I'm rocking like blazer and, uh, and jeans, which feels feels appropriate. Like kind of, you know, not trying too hard, but also looking professional. Yeah, it's the classic, uh, the professor look. That's right. Yeah, that's uh, I'm a I'm a liberal arts school professor or a boarding school like English teacher. <laughs> you look great. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, in addition to the market getting routed, uh, one of the things that's uh, much more in our sweet spot of talking about this week was a Business Insider article about uh, VC and ghostwriting of tweets, uh, and it was written not to the extent people saw it it was written uh like first person from this anonymous ghostwriter uh and business insider went through and confirmed that this person they they know their identity um and they confirmed i think with wire receipts and bank account statements and stuff that this person was actually doing it uh the person said that they were a former uh venture capital principal and that they are now a founder and they're doing this as a side hustle making, uh, they said last year they made 200 grand, uh, doing it, spending about five hours a week. So I, I guess a funny little inside thing. I got pinged by a Washington post post reporter, uh, two months ago or someone, something, someone that like had heard something about this and they were asking if I, if I knew anything about it. So a handful of reporters has, have been, I guess, sniffing around this, topic here. Um, I can't say like, listen, I'm not going to undermine the, the, uh, journalism credentials of insider. Uh, I, I assume this happens, right? There's people with a lot of money that want to look cool and sound smart. And then there's people that, uh, have time and, and are cool or are smart. And I think there's obviously a marketplace that can exist between the, those two things. Uh, so I don't want to doubt that it, it, uh, it, it doesn't happen. I, I will say that a bunch of the, there, there were a handful of things that we can kind of talk through that, that sort of threw off my, threw on my bullshit detector, uh, and just, just little things that like sounded a little off in it. Yeah. And so I don't know if the person was embellishing it or what, but, uh, there were like enough little, uh, instances that just seemed a little bit exaggerated or untrue or just like implausible for me to believe that it did make me pause and question it. But I have had it sent to me by like seven people this week or something. And so uh, it's, it's right up your alley. Yeah, it, it's uh, it was definitely like a yeah, the thing that jumped at me was the 25 to 50 clients. I don't know what is reasonable at this, but like I agree 100 percent. That was one of the things that I, you know, you would think let me be fully trans. I, I don't know a single person uh, that is 
you know, actively working with a ghostwriter on per tweets uh, and that's doing this, let alone 25 to 50 clients. It's also a, it's a funny range to give. Like it's a, it's a hundred percent Delta range, <laughs> you know, like, is it 25 or 50? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a, it, there, it's a full standard deviation apart of like, uh, it could be, you know, it could be 25 or it could be twice as many. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I, I, I agree with that. Like the, the number was, and you would think that if the number were that high, right. And this is just one person doing it. I would think that I would know, uh, that this would be like a very liquid market that we, that, that there would be a bunch of partners and MDs could log into this portal of like ghostwriters for tech Twitter or something. And, you know, and so I'm a little skeptical, uh, on that, uh, in general, but, um, yeah, I mean the, the tone, if you, if you blend it out, like they're making about $800 an hour, which is obviously, uh, quit quite high doing five hours a week and making about 200 grand. I thought one of the funny things was that, that they have a special CRM they use for ghostwriting, a dedicated laptop, a dedicated phone and a separate email address. And it's like, dude, you're managing 25 to 50 clients like why do you have this why do you have a crm and a separate phone for this it's not like you're working with like the nsa or something you know it's like it seems like you could probably get by on your like normal cell phone <laughs> or something so i i don't know yeah it's funny i i think hourly rate eight hundred dollars an hour i think i i've i've talked to some like linkedin influencers that will do this for a few friends and they say that they charge like $5,000 a post. I also know a ton of creators on TikTok and stuff like that. He didn't say charge, he or she didn't say charging uh, $500 or $800 an hour. That's five hours a week into uh, $200,000 a year, right? And so I assume this is much more performance uh, based than it is, uh, you know, actually that, I mean, that's an insane hourly rate. That's like top end of lawyers trying to get out of like white collar crime or something, right? Yeah, it's interesting. I uh, I do think uh, like one of the other things that they uh, they said in this, I, I agree with the obviously I, in some ways, like even starting this podcast was originally I was kind of fucking around on Twitter it was kind of the means of me doing this. Right. And I I will send, as you see, uh, I will send things to friends and stuff and be like, hey, is this funny or like, should I post this or whatever? And, and we'll talk through uh different ideas. But uh, one of the other claims that just seemed a little outlandish here was that it, uh, the person said most VCs who are playing the content game employ a bunch of ghostwriters. I know people who make almost seven figures doing this. And and again, like ghostwriters have been around for a while. And like these long blog posts that VCs will do oftentimes in market maps, generally they're done by in large part an associate or an intern or maybe an outsourced writer or tech writer in some way. Right. But like I, one, I, I know for a fact that most VCs who are playing the content game are not employing a bunch of writers like that is factually inaccurate in my experience. And so again, it's just one of those little things that like undermines the credibility of reading this post to to me. But I will say the distribution, one of the points that did ring true, and I guess this sort of goes to the reason to have a podcast at all, is like there is this, it used to be this cottage industry that was very built on like one-to-one relationships and rooms. And now with social media or whatever, there is an opportunity to cultivate uh, brands and awareness in a much more one-to-many 
uh, way, right? And so again, I can't say it's like, I'm sure this is happening and I'm sure it's happening in, in, in different parts, but I just find it hard to believe in terms of like how some of these things are characterized here. Yeah. The parasocial relationships thing and the part about like being able to communicate your thoughts and have a following and then have people feel like they know you before you actually get to meet them for the first time. Like that, that stuff all rang true as, as it gets towards the end of the post. I think that's true. What do you think about, like, you're in the world of content creation. Uh, you're thinking about this every day, right? And you have relationships with other creators and uh, people that are uh, comedians or are trying to make it and also make money while they're trying to to make it uh, in general. What do you think about, like, this relationship that exists? Is this just an efficient market? Does it feel disingenuous if people are... Um, leveraging other people's voices to help them come out with different things. Like, what what's your sentiment in general about the relationship that exists between like individual creators and the people that are creating and all that? Like, uh, is it bad? Have I seen examples of creators that hire writers to help them scale and make more content? You mean? I guess, I guess, I mean, Rashad, you live, you live this every day, uh, in terms of like making content and producing stuff and you were obviously doing it as a side hustle and now you're, you're helping us with a bunch of different stuff. What do, what do you think about, there are certain industries I feel like in which it's totally accepted to have other people writing your words for you. Politicians, for example, like have speech writers. And I don't think anyone would ever question, like, did a politician sit down and write those words, but then like Drake as a rapper gets crushed all the time for having ghostwriters coming up with the raps and that it's disingenuous and all of that. So it's interesting, um, different people. And I think comedians often fall in the, the middle of, of some of that. Like obviously John Stewart or whatever, when he was doing the daily show or Colbert or Jimmy Kimmel, like everyone knows that they kind of have a writer's room behind their voice. Uh, but then I think in stand up, right. Uh, people, uh, Dane Cook or whoever, like there's always been people that have been taken down for having not their own ideas or uh, like having writers write on their behalf. What do you, what do you think that is? Is it just that we, we accept certain areas of people having their own voice and in others, you know, it would uh, less so. I think so. And also like when you're putting on a show like Jon Stewart or Trevor Noah, like the daily show, this is every day and you have to come up with like unique takes. Like it's completely unreasonable to think that that person could come up with all the jokes themselves. Um, from my perspective, and I, I don't even know that this is the right way to think about it. Like I could probably produce way more content if I thought more strategically about how to uh, deploy different people and different minds to doing this. But content is such a, like authenticity is such an important thing to me and content. But even when I do workshop things with other people, I always find myself just rewriting the thing in my own very unique voice. And that's kind of like the only thing that I have in my videos is like my very unique perspective. And when I feel myself deviating a little bit from that, I don't know, it just it just doesn't feel good to me. And I, I don't do it. So I don't know. That's my that's my perspective. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I will uh, at times like there's always uh, people will recycle tweets that they see like fairly regularly. Uh, you'll see something that, you know, you saw like a year before from someone else. Right. And it just gets redone in a different way. And 
I don't know why that always makes me, it always bothers me, right? Uh, that like someone is getting credit for something that they actually didn't come up with, right? It, but I don't think it would bother me to the same extent if, uh, if they paid someone $500 or something for uh, that joke and then they published it, right? And so there's something about like, uh, creativity and also like, uh, acknowledgement for it and the capitalist market. And so when you're stealing something, it's kind of like, fuck you. But if it's fair market working with it, uh, then I don't know. Right. I mean, as a writer that's getting paid to do that, I think you, you kind of accept that even if this joke turns into a banger and, and tons of views and all of these good things come from it, you've accepted that you're not going to get credit for that joke the second you sort of go into that sort of agreement or business agreement. But you've had uh, situations where like you've given ideas to other people. I know we talked about it this week and like, uh, you know, it's different when I guess what's your sentiment when you give an idea to someone else and they run with it? Do you, do you just want to see it succeed? Yeah, maybe just like if you're like ultimately you're going to be the goal is to meet these people in person. And so when someone finds out your Twitter personality and your real life personality are completely different. Like that's one thing that I'd just be wearing. Yeah. I guess something that uh, kind of throws me for a loop with this whole ghostwriter thing is like, eventually your goal as a VC, if you're building a brand is to, you know, meet these founders in real life and be in a room with these people. Like, unless it's like crypto, unless you're doing like pseudonymous uh, funding. But yes, for the most part, right. in the normal world <laughs> exactly. that I like to operate in of funding human beings. Yeah. In the world that I've observed so far. Right. And so then my worry would be if I'm hiring a ghostwriter to do all my tweets is that once I get in the room with the founder, you know, are they going to notice that my personality is completely different than what my brand is online? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, that's an interesting observation, and I agree. And it's something that uh, that I found where I, I sort of for a while played a character on Twitter during COVID. And I was kind of like, I don't know, Colbert-ish in on the joke uh, a little bit. Like the person in this article actually said it, it was uh, somewhat familiar. Uh, they, they said, at first, I used Twitter like anybody else. I was a principal in the VC world. I developed this sardonic in-on-the-joke voice, a kind of parody, right? And I I would say I kind of did the same thing. And um, in starting a podcast and talking uh, more and more uh, where, where people I think has got, have gotten more of a, uh, a breadth of like perspective on how I think and how I talk and all that, you, you realize some of these things are like just one dimensional, right? And I don't think anyone ever thought uh, that I was only going to joke all the time and I got to where I was in my career, right? That would be kind of a weird promotion path if I was like cracking jokes in every right. meeting, you know, <laughs> just like at some point someone would be annoyed with me if I was just like uh, playing a playing an act. And so, but there is that, <laughs> there is that, uh, uh, congruity uh between the two right uh where you need to make sure it's uh it is somewhat consistent with how you're going to operate or at least the brand that you want people to perceive and i think we've probably both been in the world of like you meet someone online that's very different than uh than who, or you meet someone, you have a perception of someone, then you meet them and they're like totally different, which I think people here on the backside of this episode, like Mark Cuban, by the way, in all my interactions, exactly the same person. And I had people reach out to me after I published that. And like every single person said in every situation that they've been around him, he is a hundred percent the same person of who he is. But there is that element of like, 
trying to make sure it's it's uh, consistent across the board. And so, yeah, and it can be a little exaggerated, but when it deviates completely and it's like orthogonal to your personality, like you're just setting yourself up for failure. I already feel like when I go on a date with someone or something that's like seen my content before that I have to show up and be like this funny person. And like, you know, there's already that added layer of pressure to do that with someone else's jokes on my page. Like, no, no fucking way. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, what you're going to hear now is, uh, is Mark Cuban, a person that is uh, consistent in uh, our interactions here, as well as, uh, as well as every story I've heard about him, as I alluded to. Uh, Mark was great. Uh, super interesting conversation. He, uh, he was very gracious with his time. We blocked an hour um, and we ended up going uh, I think 90 ish minutes or whatever, an hour and 20 minutes. Uh, I tried to sneak in a little bit of, uh, getting like Mavericks tickets at the end and, uh, we'll see, we'll, we'll see our, I think, I think we had a good thing going on, but, uh, by the end I was really like shooting my shot and I was like, Oh, Nick's Mavs, December 27th. And he's like, Oh yeah, you know, sounds good. So I think I, I opened the door enough, but not as not, not enough that like, I'm going to show up in Dallas and try to get tickets from him. But you know, maybe this was the start of a budding friendship between me and, uh, cubes. The uh, uh, were you always attracted to European white men? I was proud of that. I came up with that in the moment, too. I write down on my thoughts. That was a good but, one. Yeah, we'll let people hear that. I, I think you caught him off guard a little bit. It was great. Yeah, I caught him off guard a few times with, uh, with some of the questions. So, all right, good. Well, you'll hear Cuban now. Where in the world are you? I'm in Dallas to film. Nice. Yeah, I like the backdrop. Yeah, you like that? Get a little NBA trophy work in. I got to give you the full disclosure here. And uh, I, you can drop if this is a problem, but I'm a Knicks season ticket holder. Um, and I don't know what your relationship with the Knicks are right now, but. Oh, it's the same. It's just another team. Yeah, good. Good. That's what I like to hear. Well, I was going to the preseason games and, uh, and you know, I, I'm appreciative of some of the guys that have come over uh, of late. So Love Janet. There's no question about it. Yeah, he's such a good, he just doesn't look the part, but uh, he certainly, I mean, I don't want to get you in trouble, uh, but he's uh, he's such a talented, like, I don't know. I mean, it's been 15 years of not having a point guard. Yeah, no, he can play for sure. For sure. Well, thanks for doing this. So, so uh, I'm going to take you in a bunch of uh, different directions, if that's cool, uh, and play play some of the hits. I've gone back and listened to you. Uh, I, I realize this isn't your first rodeo of doing podcasts. So I uh, some of the stuff that uh, maybe you've talked about in the past, some of the stuff you haven't, if that works. Let's rock and roll. Awesome. Cool. Well, may maybe bat lead off. So, uh, so Bill Gates stole a girl from you one time. Yeah. Back in the eighties, um, it was at Comdex. Comdex was like the biggest computer, um, convention in Vegas and we would work hard and we would play hard. And I was hanging out with some friends and talking to some girls. They went to get a drink. They never, I went to get a drink. They, you know, they never came back. And so then talking to them later, talking to my friends later, found out that they went to hang out with newly minted IPO zillionaire um, Bill Gates. And, you know, I thought I was better looking, but sometimes money matters. People think of this like charitable kind of dorky guy uh, that he is today, right? Uh, giving all the money, philanthropy and all that. But back in the day, I mean, there was a little bit of a party culture and all. Yeah, he, he had a good time. I, I don't know. I don't know well at all. So I, I couldn't speak to his um, proclivities. But all I know is what happened. Yeah, I, I guess we can look at the scoreboard on that one. <laughs> one of the questions I have for you, you, you seem to respond to email uh, super quick, uh, quickly. Your email's been out there for a long time. How do you actually do that? H how are you able to process? I assume you get thousands of emails a day. I have a hard time with whatever the tens a day I get. Uh, but how are you able to respond so fast? It's really easy. First of all, Gmail works really well because they have the AI generated responses. And so they, it, it's 
it's really taught itself a lot of my responses. So typically what I'll do is um, I'll just read the, the first line or first paragraph and you know I'll know almost immediately if I want to read any more. And if I don't want to read any more, I just hit the delete key. I don't promise to respond to all of them, but they'll at least get my attention. Um, and then if I read past the first paragraph, then Google's probably got a response if I'm not interested. But if you get me past the first paragraph and I am interested, then I'll start peppering you with questions and see where it takes us. That's good. I mean, it, it's a it's a very um, uh, I guess humble way to. I, it sounds like you're doing this all on your own and don't have people managing it and all that stuff. No, I'm the only one that sees my email. And once upon a time, you actually published it right on a uh, uh, for the Mavs, right? You published it. Yeah, when I first bought the Mavs, I put it up there so that you know they were my customers, and I just bought the team. I wanted them to know that I was responsible, and I cared about what they thought, and so I put my email up on the jumbotron and. You know, I responded to every single fan's email. It's impressive. Now, I think, what, what do you think of as your superpower, the thing that you do uniquely well that's allowed you to succeed as well as you have? I mean, you know, it's hard to ever know for sure, but I think one, one of my strengths is I can, I can drill down on something in seconds, things that other people have to go research and figure out. I mean, you know, it's like on Shark Tank. Because someone comes on and pitches me, I know exactly what their business is, you know, two minutes after they, they've started talking, if not sooner. Um, I, I just have a good understanding of different types of businesses. And I and I'm, it's pretty simple for me to put myself in the shoes of the entrepreneur and what they're trying to accomplish. So that's first and foremost. And then I, I'm just, a, I'm always curious. I think curiosity is my second um, superpower where I, I just continuously try to learn because that's probably, you know, they always say knowledge is power. And, and I truly believe that. But it's a continuous search for that new knowledge. Be, you know, Bill Gates, uh, not Bill Gates, um, Steve Jobs said everything's a remix. And I truly believe that where there's always new information coming. And if you have a solid foundation and you add more to it, you come up with new things in better ways. Everything goes back to Xerox Parks uh, some way, right? I, I mean, people don't realize AT&T, Bell Research and um, Xerox Parks. I mean, you know, I was I was around selling those days and, you know, the mouse and work processing and GUI interface. Yeah, the GUI interface is part. I mean, you talk about one of the greatest give ups of all time. You know, even Wang, like Wang won up Xerox and then Apple came along and just took it all and did a better job of selling it. It's amazing. It's one of the things I'll ask entrepreneurs when we're investing. Like, no idea is unique. Like, even Uber, right? There was whatever, Taxi Cab or Taxi Magic or whatever the things were. And so there, there's the why now of something, right? Like, everything has been tried before in some way, shape, or form. It's like, nothing is actually unique in some way. It's what is the unique moment in time that allows that to exist and work in a way that it hasn't in the past, right? And this, these windows open up for like a year, two, three years at a time. And I think one of the things that today's entrepreneurs suffer from is they don't have a sense of history, so they repeat mistakes. There's not like a guidebook. Like there used to be a site um, called Fuck Company, which I loved, right? If you remember it, where it showed all these companies that blew up. Yeah. And, you know, you could read and find out why. And that, you know, I learned, I learned more from companies that I was involved with that failed or that I worked for that failed than I did from companies that were successful because sometimes learning what not to do is more is just as important as learning what to do. And, you know, people, particularly young entrepreneurs, have this sense where I can Google it, right? Or I'll go TikTok and look it up. And if I don't find it, it must be new. They don't, you know, they forget to recognize that 
when a company goes out of business, they don't keep on paying for their servers to be spider. You know, there's just, there's no set, there's no understanding of why companies that came before us didn't work. And I think, you know, on one hand, being an entrepreneur, ignorance is bliss and it can really, not knowing what you don't know gives you the, can keep you moving forward sometimes, but at the same time, not knowing what you don't know could also stymie you. And I think entrepreneurs today don't really recognize that. Yeah, there's this balance between like having a prepared mind of like understanding what's going on in the ecosystem, but also a beginner's mind to ask the first principles questions. And it's like when you see these big discoveries, oftentimes it's like people porting logic from one field into the other, right? And, and actually apply some way of thinking that hasn't been brought to drug discovery or government procurement. All the time, right? I mean, and then, you know, and then it's also hard sometimes to know what's a product and what's a feature. Because if the 900th Uber of something, and we all got pitched the Uber of whatever a hundred times, you know, Uber got into Uber Eats, you know, and, and get got into other things as well. And so, you know, it's hard to know what direction to take unless you're prepared. Like Bobby Knight, the old coach at Indiana University said, everybody's got the will to win, but it's only those with the will to prepare that do win. And, you know, that's another one of my little truisms that I hold close because you got to do the work. Totally. Yeah. Uh, Bobby was there when you were uh, at Indiana, wasn't he? That must have been fun. Fucker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's right. I, uh, you know, ten I'm a big Tennessee college football fan and I feel like Indiana basketball and Tennessee football have been sort of kindred spirits of like, you know, programs that were very elite back in the day. And so, yeah. Yeah. Johnny major than, um, Bobby Knight, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I actually went to Pitt uh, a few weeks ago and they did the whole Johnny Majors classic thing because he won the national championship there. And what took you to Pitt? Pitt, Tennessee. Oh, that's right. We just, yeah, we played those guys. Yeah. 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 It was a, it was a fun game, but no, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting, right. Uh, to, to have all those experiences to draw on and stuff. Now, now this is actually a nice segue. You grew up in Pittsburgh, right? Father was in the impulse upholstery business. How, um, was he first-generation immigrant, or were his parents first-generation? First-generation. My grandparents came from Ukraine and um, Lithuania. How did that upbringing influence you? I've heard you describe you were like a chubby kid with with bad teeth or repurposed teeth, and your dad yep. lost his eye growing up. And so I guess, how did that experience sort of growing up, I don't know how you characterize it, if it was working class or whatever, but how did that influence you today? Yeah, no, it's certainly working class, you know, blue collar. Um, my dad went to work every morning at 7 a.m. to go work as an upholsterer and, you know, lost his eye, you know, when I was 11. And um, it's, you know, my mom did odd jobs and she was trying to find some new thing to do every month, it seemed like. Um, you know, it, it was it was a great upbringing. I, I can't complain at all. Neither of my parents went to college, but they they were very clear that, I and my two younger brothers were all going to go to college, and we did. And, um, my dad would take me to where he worked at Regency Products, and he would have me sweep the floors and help clean up and carry stuff around, not because he wanted me to learn that business, because he wanted me to learn that it was backbreaking business. And then if I didn't, you know, get an education, that's what I, that's that could be my future. And he wanted to scare the shit out of me, and he did. It seems like even at that age, you had like this entrepreneurial hustle uh, thing going on. I mean, what were some of the businesses? I've heard you talk about this, but it, it sounds like at all times you were scheming or had some idea of what, you know. Uh, you know, it, it was interesting. Um, you know, when when you're young and you're fearless, um, like my dad, um, I wanted some new tennis shoes. And my dad, you know, was like, 
uh, playing poker and one of his buddies was like, well, I've got these garbage bags you could sell door to door and I'll never forget them. You know, a box of a hundred cheap little thin garbage bags. I bought them for three, sold them for six, but literally I would, hi, my name is Mark. I'm your neighbor. Do you use garbage bags? It's a big market. You know, but I learned to sell and that was the key, you know, because once you can walk up and knock on a door and just roll out a sales pitch and deal with objections, if you could do that at 12 and 14 and 15 and 18, you're set for life because once you can sell, there's always a job for you because no company's ever succeeded without sales. And so that gave me confidence as a kid. And so, you know, I went from selling garbage bags to selling magazines door to door to selling candy to um, selling, buying and selling stamps. You know, it was cool. You know, I learned a lot buying and selling stamps too, because it was a very inefficient market. And I remember going to trade shows. It, you know, it started off as a stamp collection because my mom as a kid collected some stamps and she had this stamp book um, where she had stamps from all over the world and everything she had collected. And, um, you know, we would talk about history and, and geography and different countries. And I thought that was cool. So I started collecting stamps. And then I started realizing that as a collector, there were other collectors who made value assessments on the value of those stamps. And I literally um, remember going to a, a stamp show, excuse me, and starting off and buying a stamp for 25 or 50 cents one place and selling it for 25 bucks somewhere else. And it was all because one dealer valued it at this grade quality and another dealer valued it at a higher grade quality and thought it was a completely different stamp that was worth more money. And I'm like, well, shoot, it's just a matter of me finding the people who are under, you know, grading them and finding the people who are over grading them and making some money. And that's literally um, how I helped pay for my freshman year of college. That's funny. Young Mark Cuban learning the arbitrage and inefficiencies of market. So true, but it's, it's applicable everywhere to this day, even with AI and machine learning and people, you know, um, high frequency trading, there are still inefficient markets. And the most, you know, exemplary, exemplary of those times is how we, how each of us value our own time. You know, we're getting to a world now because everybody's reachable where we are of our own time. And, you know, you might value your time at X. I might value my time as X plus one or X minus one, right? And then it's just a question of who can I hire because that's more efficient or who can I work for because it's a better use, of, better, better value of my time. And I think that's a real direction that we're seeing everything go towards. You know, how do you value your time? Now you touched on sales as one of the unique things that you learned, and it, it's something I've, uh, that that uh, I've seen in some of the companies that we invest in and work with is how the founder needs to own that. I, I think early lesson from Mike Kumecki back in the day for you, right, of uh, not actually owning the the sales process. Person who ever brought that up proactively without me having to bring it up. Listen, I did my homework, Mark. Yes, you did. Um, and thank you for that, Logan. Um, and so, you know. Again, talking about the lessons I learned of what not to do, there these were guys who were more interested in where I bought my suits. And I would tell them, you know, these were two for 99 specials. And, you know, I bought my first um, work shirts used at Retreads. Um, and they wouldn't go on sales calls, would not go. On, and literally those first few jobs I had in sales, the CEOs didn't go on sales calls. And then when I finally started my company, it was like, I'm selling everything. When I got to the mats, I'm selling everything. Cost plus drugs, I'm selling everything, right? Because if I can't, if I'm not so committed and understand my product and its market placement so well, 
you know, or better than anybody, I'm in trouble because I'm not going to be able to train. I'm not going to be able to elicit confidence. You know, there's just so many issues with CEOs that don't sell. It informs the feedback loop in such a meaningful way. I'll invest in very um, technical oriented, you know, computer science background founders, and they'll, they they view sales in the same way that uh, the the go to market heads view uh, engineering as like kind of black magic, right? They're kind of like, well, you know, that's that's this art form I don't understand, and it's something that um, it informs all the product related decisions, and it informs all the engineering, and it informs how you hire people, and all of that. And so, one of the things that we spend a lot of time on is just like, no, you have to. Everyone sells, right? You got me to give you money. You sold me on your vision. You can sell, right? Like you can do it. I promise you. You got it, people to believe in what you're doing. And so, this is just a slightly different form of that. And then you don't have to do it forever, but it does inform your ability to build product and different features. You're always selling one way or another, right? You've, you know, because when it comes to hiring, if you don't know how you're selling your product, and then you can't really set the vision because there's no way that they'll go vision and connect that to product market fit, right? Or service market fit. And if you totally. do that, then it's hard to hire your first employees to get them aligned with what you're trying to accomplish. And if you can't do any of those things, what you see happening in companies, you know, we all invest in is they try to do home run hiring where because the CEO can't do something, particularly as it relates to sales, they, you know, cause their sales aren't high enough for whatever reason, they, they try to do home run hiring where they go out and say, I just need a new head of sales. I just need a new head of marketing. And then whoever they hire, no matter who, who it is, oh, this person's amazing. How many times have you heard that from hires? Oh, totally. Oh, this person's amazing. The silver bullet hire. The silver bullet hire, right? If they're so amazing, why did their previous employer let them leave? If they're so amazing, you know, why didn't they start their own thing? And look, I get it where it just makes sense and it's a good move um, sometimes, but the silver bullet hire, the home run hire, it, it's a fallacy. You know, people don't appreciate oftentimes when they want to be CEOs, it's actually kind of a, I mean, it, there's all the glamour associated with it, but at the end of the day, like 90% of your time spent, you know, selling and HR, right. Or some you, you're, you're, and you're fixing, if you don't know how to sell, you don't know what problems to fix to fit what you need to sell. Like I was just in a meeting, um, to early this morning and they were like, okay, we're going to do a, B and C for cost plus drugs. And I'm like, we can do that ourselves. I sell this shit all day, every day. I know what we can do. I, I don't need you. You know, if, if you don't sell as a CEO, if you don't sell as a founder, even if you're not the CEO, you're in trouble, right? Because you literally, you can't control your own destiny. And that, you know, not to get too far afield, but it's like, do you go to college or not go to college as a young kid, right? The benefit of going to college is you know, in business in particular, you get to learn all the blocking and tackling and checklist items so that you're not dependent on somebody else. I learned accounting. So I think that last week in their current assets that, you know, they're trying to tell me business is good in their current assets, they put market development. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Right? Like you can't snow me like that. Whereas, you know, if so Having that broad-based business background is so valuable, so valuable. Um, yeah, anyway. No, 100%. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about, so, so broadcast.com was, uh, well, maybe maybe for people that don't know, can you give your your quick journey from, uh, from you know, uh, Mike Humecki not, not uh, firing you or whatever it was back in the day to, to starting a, a systems integrator to broadcast.com and collaring stock and all that? Can you give your version of it? 
Well, I'll give you the quick and dirty. <clears throat> um, came down to Dallas, lived six guys in a three-bedroom apartment, got a job working at night as a bartender. During the day, I was applying for jobs. Went to this computer store, the first retail computer store in Dallas called Your Business Software. I didn't really, I, I mean, I bought a $99 TI-99 4A computer. Then I taught myself some basic programming. Or that was my computer experience. What year is this? This is 1982. Okay. So, so Dell is, I mean, Texas is the place to be for computer, but Dell isn't really taken off in the way. And Well, Dell was just, Mike was just starting. That's a whole nother story. We did business together when he was still in his dorm room, not knowing you know, what would happen. But, um, but yeah, so I got a job selling software and it was a retail store. And there weren't a lot of people walking into retail stores um, back in the early 80s. But, you know, I got the chance then to read every manual from every software product, you know, iOS accounting, um, Peachtree accounting, WordPerfect, WordStar. I would just sit there, Lotus, one, two, three, and read the manual. So it was like a front rate, you know, education and I was growing, and then I would have time during the day to go out there and make sales calls. And I would go to the local retail computer stores, you know, the IBM computer store, 9X, um, Entree, you know, all these just to pull names out of a hat that people don't remember. Um, and one day I had a chance to make, um, a, um, to go, I closed the deal and I had a chance to go pick up a check for $15,000. And my commission was going to be 1500 which was huge, huge for me. And this was like middle of, not, it, probably May, June, 19, 1983. And so, but part of my responsibility was to sweep the floor and, and open the store. And so I got someone to cover for me and I figured, um, and I called my boss and told him, he said, no, I need you in the store. I'm like, Michael Hubecki, I, I need to pick up this check. I committed to it. And I made the executive decision to go pick up the check figuring if I hand him a $15,000 check that I knew the business needed, then he'd be all smiles and happy, fired me. And so from there, went and um, started a company, Microsolutions, didn't raise money, had no money, still sleeping on the floor, basically broke, thinking I might have to start bartending again, and um, had a company that had come in to talk to me about um, time accounting software called um, Architectural Lighting. And I went to them, and I was just honest. I said, look, I got no money. Um, but I know this software. I taught it to myself. If you put up the $500 that I need and it's $250 to buy the software, I promise you I'll make it work no matter how long it takes or I'll wash your car, walk your dog, whatever. They said yes. That led to a you know, referral to another company and another company. You know, and along the way, I'm, I'm teaching myself how to program and basic and you know, database scripting programs, you name it. Um, and I started writing applications. And that turned into being a systems integration company. And one of the smart things we did in 1983 was um, we became one of the first resellers for um, a company called Televideo and the first reseller for a company called Novell, um, who were the first local area network companies. And Televideo was an OEM and Novell. So we were one of the first, if not the first in Dallas and one of the first in the country to start doing multi-user local area network sales. And then not long, not long after that, I'm writing software to enable, you know, to customize applications. We, you know, I wrote the first X.12 um, interface with Walmart and this company called Babyfair so that they could um, send automatically POs. Wrote a, um, a video integrated, and this was a couple of years later, um, for Zale Corporation. So instead of having to go take a watch out of a vault so they could place another PO, we took pictures of all the watches and integrated them. And so just wrote application, application, grew that business. Um, where we were doing $3 million a month. 
um, 80 employees, sold it to H&R Block Copy, CopyServe, which was owned to H&R Block for $6 million. A million of that went to um, um, employees. Um, two and a half went to a guy I brought on as a partner, Martin, Martin Woodall, and two and a half for me. And did you at that point, did you just sort of fall into software because the guy hired you uh, and the staffing agency sent you that way and this was software and it seemed like, and you just kept following little crevices that, that took you forward? It wasn't like some purposeful outside in, hey, thematically software is going this way. Well, actually I had a list of forward thinking um, jobs I would like to get involved with the cable industry. The, I, I didn't call it, it wasn't software, it was just the computer and the PC industry. CD ROM, or, or I guess not even CD ROMs at that point, floppy. So, yeah, so th that's why I was applying there because that, that was an industry I wanted to be involved with. And the way I looked at it is it was, and I, to this day, it was something new. It was changing every day. And there was a new product, a new upgrade every day. And I figured, there was the the there were the people who wrote the software or created the upgrade and everybody else. And I was tied with everybody else in my opportunity to learn it. And so if I just put in the time, I could, you know, I, I thought I was smart enough that I could figure it out and catch up, maybe not catch up to the 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 programmers, but stay ahead of everybody else. And that's the way I've approached it ever since. So, so CopyServe, H&R Block buys your systems integrator business. Right. So then I, I, we sell and then I retire. And so I'd read this book, How to Retire by the Age of 35. I was 30. I had a couple million dollars plus in the bank. Um, and I was going to live like a student for however long. And um, I gave, hooked up with a broker at Goldman Sachs. And I told him, I want to invest like I'm a 60-year-old. He's like, you sure? I'm like, yeah, because I just want to collect because interest rates were higher. I just want to live off of that. Don't want to have to worry about it. But once I got to Goldman Sachs, um, my broker kept on putting me in touch with the analysts. And their analysts would ask me questions because I had installed local wide area networks. So I knew all those companies, you know, Synoptics, Wealthy, you know, Cisco, et cetera, um, and all the software companies. And I talked to them about the products. And the next thing I know, I'd see them on CNBC. And they're saying they're just repeating what I said. And it would move the stock. And so my broker was like, you see what's happening. Why don't you start, you know, the companies you know that are good, you go long. The companies you know that aren't good, you go short. So I started doing that and just started killing it, killing it. I made tens of millions of dollars trading from 1990 to, you know, 1994, 95 before we started AudioNet. And so I, I, I did so well that I started a hedge fund that I never even had to go fund somebody who we were were asking to invest in it as an LP just bought it out. They said, if you just help me, I'll give you all these millions of dollars. If you just help me, you know, raise more money, then I'll manage it and do it. You know, and I was like, great. So, I mean, I was set. I, I could have retired for the rest of my life there. Um, and I was 36. Um, but then I would get together with one of my buddies from Indiana, Todd Wagner. And late 94, maybe early 95, he came to me and he goes, yeah, we're California Pizza Kitchen. And we're, we're yucking it up. And um, he's like, look, you know, there's, we're both Indiana fans. There's got to be a way with this new thing called the internet to listen to Indiana basketball. And I'm like, let me think about it. And I had done, you know, like I just said, networking. And so I started looking at, you know, um, <clears throat> Linux and um, Sun, um, NFF file formats to do progressive downloads. And we, so we created this um, website called audionet.com. And I went to a local um, radio station, KLIF, and I said, look, um, 
we're going to be streamed internet broadcasting over the internet. And we think people around the world and people in particular in offices are going to want to listen to your programming because they can't listen to it now. So think of it as just like cable TV for radio. <coughs> Same concept. Would you just let us connect to your board and try to stream it? And by the way, this is a momental. So we took two eight-hour VCRs and two eight-hour VCR tapes, and we went down to KLIF, and I connected it to the board using um, analog um, connectors, and then I would record eight hours worth on each of these tapes. I take it back to my house. For people that are listening, uh, it's it's right next to the NBA championship trophy. So it, it has prime real estate in Mark Cuban's office, these cassette tapes do. I'm proud of that, right? Because literally, we, we took a $29 eight-hour VCR deck and two, you know, $2 eight-hour VCR tapes. And we would go back. I'd take it back to my house. I'd connect it um, and then encode it. At, you know, and it would take all day. But then we would host it on audionet.com. And then I'd go on all the bulletin boards, you know, Prodigy. AOL, you name it, CompuServe, and just say, hey, if you're interested in Dallas sports or news and you're not in Dallas or you're stuck in an office, go to audionet.com. And it just blew up. And then ultimately you bought the broadcast.com domain. Is that how that came to be? Well, a couple of years later, when we realized we were going to video too, um, we spent like eight grand to buy broadcast.com um, domains and moved it to broadcast.com. And you know, the best way to describe it so people around weren't around back then. We were YouTube before YouTube. I mean, literally, we had, uh, and we were Spotify and Pandora. We had hundreds, you know, and hundreds of um, automated radio stations. We had, you know, police scanner radio station. We had Christmas stations running year round. You name it. I remember using it, by the way, I was living in, uh, my dad took a job up in New York and I was, uh, we were living in New Jersey and I wanted to go hear Tennessee college football games in 98, 99, which was the last time they were actually good. And I would, it was broadcast.com was how I was able to listen to John Ward on the radio in Knoxville, Tennessee. Yeah. And all sorts we wanted to listen to uh, John Fisher from IU basketball and, you know, but people didn't know how to value the rights. So we locked up everything. Everything. I mean, every major college football um, program, you know, whoever had their rights, we we worked with them, Learfield, whoever, right? We locked up radio stations. We locked up independent TV stations. We locked up, you know, everybody and anything. We did the first of everything, first bowling, first wedding, you name it, anything that was broadcast over the internet, we did it first. Um, and, but we really where we made our money was in doing uh, professional events, so corporate events. So prior to broadcast.com, if M Motorola, who was one of our customers, wanted to do an all-hands meeting, they literally would rent movie theaters and using satellite, you broadcast to the theaters and have all their employees sit in the seats of the theater. We, you know, we would charge them a million dollars, which was a third of what they would pay doing it the other way, and teach them how to connect it, connect, you know, go through their firewalls, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so they could do it. And that was our business. And so um between the commercial and consumer, we, we, you know, then we went public in July of 1998 uh, with broadcast.com, and it was the biggest IPO in the history of the stock market at the time. It's been surpassed, but that was a big deal at the time. What did valuation peak at, uh, at, a, at its highest? Well, when we sold, that was its highest. Well, no, it actually, I, yeah, it actually wasn't the peak because even after we sold, um, we sold for Yahoo stock, um, Yahoo stock went up hundreds of dollars after that. So we, 
We sold for five, you know, the valuation of Yahoo stock when we sold was 5.7 billion, but it probably went up to nine or 10, you know, when Yahoo stock went up. And so you made a bunch of money for every, right? Because people that put in 30K ended up making whatever, 22 million bucks off of that. And now they killed now, one of the things that you, I mean, one of the best trades and the reason uh, we're not talking about Mark Cuban, the internet bubble uh, guy, but instead we're talking about Mark Cuban, billionaire, Mavs owner, all that, was you you recognized there was a bubble at the time and collared the stock. So what were you seeing? Like, what was the euphoria? I mean, everyone in hindsight knew it was a bubble, right? But like, not everyone collared their 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 stock options, right? Well, when I told you about trading stocks after microsolutions and doing all that trading and also shorting stocks. So I saw stocks go straight up and stocks go straight down. I saw all the different trends. You know, PC stocks were big until they weren't. Networking stocks were big until they weren't. You know, people forget, WorkPerfect, a company that's long gone, I think, was a public company, right? There were so many of those that just came and went, Novell, et cetera. Like, I don't need to see this story for the fifth time. And so um, I went to my guys at Goldman and said, we got to put on, actually, the first thing I did was I wanted to um, buy, or, buy and sell volatility. And there was no way to buy or sell volatility. So the guys that we were talking to at Goldman quit and went out and started an index and created the VIX. Oh, wow. I was going to say the VIX didn't exist then, but it sounds like it was your your brainchild. Yeah, it, it initiated it. So I was like, I don't need to see the story again. Um I got a B next to my name. I'm the luckiest motherfucker on the planet. I don't care. And so um, there was a law that said because um, that I couldn't I couldn't just short Yahoo stock, but what I could do is short an index that as long as it didn't have more than five percent of Yahoo stock in it. So I found an internet index that had less than five percent and took pretty much every penny I had, every bit I had, because one and I and I shorted that index because one of two things was going to happen: if the bubble didn't burst. Then you know my my um my money went away, but I was good because I could sell my Yahoo stock. If the bubble did burst, well, okay, I'm cover until until I can sell my stock or hedge my stock, right? So I bought myself six months, lost all my money on that hedge on that when shorting that index because the stock didn't drop, but it bought me time where I could immediately put on the hedge that I did, where I sold calls you know that were staggered over three years and bought puts that were staggered over three years, and as it turns out. I actually ended up making more money on the puts than I lost on the calls and ended up making more money in addition to protecting my my um, my Yahoo stock. Was there any moment that you saw, because people draw parallels today between crypto and the internet, right, and, and all of that, and we can go down that rabbit hole. I think you, you have some more optimism about crypto than, than maybe I do, but people certainly draw parallels about like that time versus this. Were there tangible things that like from a speculative standpoint, because you know, Amazon obviously emerged from that time. Google was a couple of years after, you know, their eBay is still worth 30, 50 billion dollars. PayPal still worth 200 or whatever. So like, it's not like there was no value created then, but was there something that you just saw from a, hey, this is speculative clearly and there's retail money prop propping this stuff up? So the parallel to crypto are, are bright, you know, if, um, so remember back in the early days of Amazon, there was a widespread feeling that, you're an idiot if you gave your credit card to any online retailer. Oh, totally. There's some hilarious newspaper mag like Barron's covers with Bezos on the cover, right? Yeah, and and so and then there's you know the Pets.com and a thousand other companies um, that you know 
all they had was a website and no business and no sales and people just speculated on that. So, you know, the speculation, the pure speculation on just a, a bulletin board stock, right? Um, or even if it went NASDAQ is 100% analogous to the speculation on tokens. It's the same thing, right? There's no there there, but it, you know, it's just supply and demand. And, and it, by the way, it wasn't just back then. There's 20,000 bulletin board pink sheets over-the-counter stocks traded today where you'll see bankrupt companies trading 2 million shares a day and they're bankrupt. There's no chance unless you can get a greater fool to buy from you. And so, you know, it was very analogous there. In terms of the real fundamentals, it was the same, right? You know, there's got to be utility. And lots of people argued over the utility of walking into a Barnes & Noble versus buying a book from Amazon. And who would do what? Lots of people argued about PayPal. You know, is you know, do people really just need a few lines of code in their software and how much, how valuable was that when there were credit cards and all you have to do is put in your credit cards? And so there, there was a lot of argument about utility. I think if there's a difference between then and now, because, um, because the internet was kind of a unified platform, right? Where even though there were issues, everybody worked on the internet. Whereas today with crypto, there is an unlimited number of blockchains that are the platforms, right? Even though there's an underpinning of X number of ISPs, basically, that are enabling all that communications with the blockchains. Um, right now, anybody, you know, with a little bit of, of time and, and effort can create their own blockchain, much like you could create your own website back then. But there's not one unified platform like the internet. And so that creates a lot of uncertainties. And, you know, Warren Buffett has this saying, first there's the innovators, then there's the imitators, then there's the idiots. And so right now, like with the web, we're in that, we're evolving, we've evolved out of that imitator phase where everybody copies the Uber of whatever. And we're, in, we're coming out of that idiot phase. And what we need now, like we needed back then, were new in, was new innovation. Crypto doesn't have that new innovation. DeFi is set, right? There's other, you know, NFTs and some other smart contract applications are set, but there's no other ubiquitous platform that your mom or your grandmother, you know, or your dad just has to use. Whereas with the internet, it was an obvious path, right? And there's a lot of breakage, by the way, even, even NFTs, we can agree, like maybe they have value, maybe they don't, right? And digital scarcity and whatever. NFTs are just a collectible. Right. People will believe it or they won't. And, you know, who knows? Right. The DeFi thing's interesting. It's like a Picasso, right? Either you believe there's value there or you don't. It's up to you. Yeah. And there's digital, there's such a thing as digital scarcity, right? Like there's a finite amount of storage on our phone with pictures and pe we can argue about that and people will either agree or not. The utility will be an interesting one. DeFi, you know, there's elements of it that I think are really can be impactful and certainly impactful, if not from an economic standpoint, but from a quality of human life standpoint, like, you know, whatever, escaping a country or whatever, all that stuff, right? And digital gold and all that. But there's so much breakage right now that exists of just like, fraud. There was more back then. The difference was you got all your information from a few websites, right? Or you got all your information from traditional media. Whereas with now with social media, it's just so much spam, so much garbage that it's hard to segregate the, si the signal from the noise. But I think the fundamental difference is with crypto, you can structure organizations so that they're um, flatter, right? They're not hierarchical. Whereas prior to crypto, 
like if you're starting a company today, whether you want to get in, you know, call it a DAO or whatever you want to call it, you could be far more horizontal and it works with crypto. Whereas if I'm starting a corporation today for almost any other startup, it's going to be a hierarchical or organization, period, end of story. Is that a good thing? I mean, I, I, people always argue about like, oh, your customers can actually be your owners and all that, but you've sold enterprise software, right? And like, I don't know if our customers actually, we want them telling us on product development or, you know, hiring people and incentive structures. Do you think it's, it's going to be widespread? Do you think there's a handful of use cases that it makes sense? I sort of struggle with like that. No, I think there's plenty of use cases and it's not so much your customers because I've always said you never listen to your customers because they don't know what they don't know yet, right? Your job is to invent what your customers don't know that they need yet. That's what makes, that's, that's what creates, you know, home runs. But, um, at the same time, there's situations where hierarchical companies have to make decisions about the circumstances of their customers. And one of the easiest examples is um, healthcare insurance, right? You want a pre-authorization. Well, there's somebody, the first call, they're saying no. And then you always talk to the manager. They're saying no. Then you try to work your way up, and hopefully you're not dead by that time, but you've caused a lot of consternation. In a distributed environment where somebody is um, creating a node, they put up some, let's just say it's Ethereum and they're putting up to Ethereum to um, create a node to, to, to be trained, to be able to be a decision maker in a, a, in a distributed um, healthcare insurance environment. And there's a thousand nodes that have been trained and Mark um, has a request for a pre-authorization for th Synthroid, you know, the hypothyroidism drug I take, right? And so rather than dealing with um, a hierarchical organization like we do now, and it's the health insurance company trying to find ways not to do it. These thousand arbitrators of it who are paid to be the arbitrator, they get a yield through their staking, right? They get to make the decision and it's majority rules, right? Or you can do an optimistic roll-up where you could say, you know, in an optimistic roll-up, there's a challenge node, right? Where there's a node that gets paid just to review all the decisions by the thousand, 10,000, 100,000, and if they think somebody's not is being fraudulent, they get to challenge them. And if they win the challenge, they get their stake. And if they lose the challenge, they give up their stake. So in those particular cases where you don't want just an individual or two or hierarchical organization who's only interested in the bottom line over patient health, I'd rather I'll take the distributed organization all day, every day. And I think everybody would as well for insurance applications. And there's other applications the same way. So I see the need, but to create that is going to be years and a lot of money. And so, whereas with the internet, you you know, once you got to the point where if you had broadband, you know, and in a laptop, you could create almost anything. Yeah, no, it's, it, uh, yeah, it makes sense. Um, one of the things in talking about, and I want to get to cost plus drugs in a second, but, but, uh, Transitioning after the broadcast.com days. So, so then you bought the Mavericks, right? Which was another uh, amazing investment. Can, can we talk a little bit about the culture there? I don't know how you would characterize it. And reading about it, it seemed pretty shitty. And they certainly were not winning games, right? And this is something that um, at, at, when new leadership comes into a company or, uh, you know, CEOs are oftentimes, as we talked about earlier, the jobs are kind of selling and HR are sort of the two things that you get tasked with. How did you actually go in and implement that culture change from Ross Perot's, uh, I think more financial oriented only incentive structure around running the Mavericks to actually being this new kind of upstart innovative group? Like what did you actually do to make that happen? Money, time, and energy. Right. Vision, I guess, too. You know, on the 
um, business side of it, they were kind of defeatist. You know, it's just like if someone's a hardcore basketball fan or you're playing Michael Jordan, they were coming to see the other team, not not the Mavericks. And I didn't I didn't create an office. Once I bought the team, I didn't give myself an office. I gave myself a, a, a desk in the sales um, bullpen right in the fishbowl because it. And back then, I just had a, a printout of all of our former season ticket holders or ticket buyers that we had information on in a white pages book. And literally, I would just I just started calling people, you know. And, and if they hadn't been to a game, I'm like, hey, let me just tell you about the Dallas Mavericks. Do you know that you can have the time of your life with your kids for less than going to McDonald's? Less than going to a movies. We have tickets starting at $8 and, you know, just to get their attention. But it sent the message to all the other salespeople. We can sell. We don't have to sell the quality of our team. And I literally created a rule that you are not allowed to mention our record because, and this also leads to one other thing that I think is important for all entrepreneurs. You got to know what business you're in. You know, most entrepreneurs don't know. And so all of our, all of our people thought we were in the basketball business. We weren't in the basketball business. I, I was like, tell me the score of that game you went to two years ago. No one knows. No one knows. But tell me who you were with. Tell me the special moments. Tell me about the first time your mom or your dad or your aunt, your uncle took you to a game. Tell me about the time you had with your buddy. You know, Tell me about the memories you have of going to your games. And it's always the experiences. And I had to explain to people, we're in the business of fun. We're in the business of selling experiences and ways and that you can't get anywhere else. You know, you could scream and yell and hug people you've never met at a, at a basketball game. You know, when that ball is in the air and everybody's holding their breath and you're hugging people that you've never seen before in your life when it goes in or you're commiserating when it bounces out. That's what makes the game different. So once, once the business side realized that, and I told them they were not allowed to mention our record, our sales started just creeping up because we knew what to sell. Um, and on the basketball side, I had to spend money because they were so... I mean, it was awful. I, I remember I had a meeting with the players and I said, well, what do I, what can I do to change things? One of the first things that came up, a guy, Gary Trent um, said, Mark, we get into Oakland, California at three in the morning after a game and we're hungry because all they had on the plane was snacks. We don't stay, we stayed at a Holiday Inn or whatever it was with no room service. So we're walking around Oakland, California at three in the morning looking for a 7-Eleven. You think that's good in the long run? I'm like, point taken. So I immediately upgraded them all to Ritz Carlton's, made sure we had room service, you know, and started sending the message that I'm investing in you. But here's my expectations. You better bust your ass because we're going to win. Because if we don't win, I'm shipping you out. I'm sorry. I'm only here to win. I love y'all. We'll be friends, but I'm here to win. And once that message got taken, it was over, you know? Does it make you feel old that Gary Trent's son's now in the league and, you know, like... Yeah, yeah, it does make me feel old. But yeah, it, it's crazy how long it's been. It'll be 23 years. And if, you know, I, I like being the youngest guy that was raised in hell, but now now they're used to me. It's harder to raise hell. Yeah, I was going to say, how, how, much of, how much of the bombastic sort of stuff was for show versus you were young and having fun. And I had no idea. You know, the owner of the Texas Rangers at the time, Tom Hicks said to me, um, he said, look, you know, you got covered by the Wall Street Journal. Your picture was in the Wall Street Journal. Forbes, all, all the business places wrote about you. Local newspapers wrote about you. But they wrote about you, about you when they wanted to write about you. Sports is completely different. There is There are newspapers and now blogs and other media, other outlets 
podcast that have to write something every single day. So either you create the content for them or they create the content for you. So I decided to create the content for them. And by the way, one of the people I learned the most about that right when I bought the team, I got introduced to Paris Hilton and we talked and I asked her, you know, how did you get famous for being famous? Yeah. How did you get famous for just being famous? And she explained to me, you know, you know, when she was going somewhere, she would call in advance and tell all the reporters so she could control the narrative and the stories. I'm like, brilliant. We had Dennis Rodman for two weeks, asked him the same thing, same answer. So I learned early on that you either create the narrative or the narrative is created for you. And when you work with people that have to create content, it's better just to be open, honest, and have a direct relationship. And the correlation to all business, and I say this to all my entrepreneurs, right? Because you know I have this list, and one of the things on my list is don't hire a PR firm. And that pisses PR firms off to no end. But it's not because I think PR is bad. It's the exact opposite. If you think about what happens with the PR firm, first, you have to explain your business to the PR firm and the person there. Then you have to talk to them about who you think are the influencers within your industry. Then they go and they just connect you to the influencer and try to get an article place or whatever place and get you earned media. I'm like, fuck all that. Just call that influencer, call that writer, call that trade first trade reporter and develop a relationship with them because they always need content. And since you're inside the industry, they'd rather have it from you than an intermediary. And if you see something that they write that you disagree with, just be nice and tell them. If it really pisses you off because they're way off, be really pissed off and tell them. But then at the end of all those conversations, you tell them, email me, here's my email, email me all the time, anytime, I will always respond. You might not agree or like what I say, but I will always respond. And that's how you know any CEO today can create the narrative as opposed to having the narrative created for them. You know, it's funny is that that that's one of my go-to uh, things for companies as well when they're getting going. And I wonder if I just stole it from listening to you like years ago. I thought it was my own insight like once upon a time, but- uh, It's yours. I stole it from you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You probably heard it from me. Now, now did you- did you always have an affinity towards European white men or was that something you learned over time? No, <laughs> no that's kind of just bizarre the way it turned out, right? That, that's, that's a developed, yeah, causation. There's nothing back to your, your childhood or anything around that. You know, we drafted Luca and it's not like we were saying no when you have the number three pick, you know, and Luca was the best name on the board. And so- it, it, yeah, it just happenstance. Now, the fame point of it is interesting, right? Like, I, I assume at this point, uh, you there's kind of two paths you can take. There's kind of the hedge fund guy path that people go about where they they hide in the Hamptons or whatever, and they don't have Twitter and they don't have a persona and all of that. And and then you veered in the, the other direction with buying a sports team, and then you're on the front page. And then also Shark Tank uh, wasn't something that you originally, it, I, I thought originally it was your thing, but you actually joined after it got going? Yeah, second season. I came on as a guest shark. And do you actually enjoy the level of uh, recognition and the ability to talk about the um, some of the views that you have and how it helps your companies and all of that? Like, what do you uniquely enjoy about this level of recognition? I mean, I have a platform, right? So there's nothing, if it interests me, I can get, I can create a conversation instantly, which is really cool because it allows me to check my whole card on things anytime I want. So if there's something I'm not sure about, something I want, I want to, you know, make sure I'm right about or see if I'm right and have people challenge me, which I like a lot. I mean, so that's probably 
Believe it or not, that's probably the best. If I say something, I know people are going to challenge me, particularly on social media, and I can go through and read them or I can respond and, and engage with them. And because being challenged, having that intellectual argument or discussion is, is really, really amazing to me because that's how I learn. I mean, and it's hard, you know, you can't just read everything sometimes. You, you all, sometimes you just need to have somebody or multiple people just call you a dumbass and tell you why. And you, you know, and I try to stand up for myself or I learn and I change my position. I, I'm, I'm rarely, if ever, other than, you know, being nice and humanity, you know, the Amer humanity side, or, um, I'm really rarely dogmatic about things. I really always want to be challenged. And that's probably the best part of it. Today, how would you allocate uh, Mavs owner, Shark Tank, anything else, broadcast.com, anything else on terms of what you get recognized for? Is it like 45, 45, 10, or is it 50, 50, zero? So it's probably, as of today, it's probably 50% Shark Tank, 30% um, Mavs, and 20% Cost Plus Drugs, with Cost Plus Drugs rising rapidly. I mean, it's a movie now where people like walk up to me on the streets and just hug me. That's amazing. So, so let's talk about Cost Plus Drugs. We've kind of danced around it a little bit. Can you... Can you talk about the the pharmacy benefit management world at, as it was prior to this? Like, let's just lay out what the healthcare ecosystem looks like and prescription drugs and all that prior to your uh, business here. Prior to plus drugs, what happens is um, there are these vertically integrated companies that are owned by insurance companies, and they own these things called pharmacy benefit managers. And the design goal, the original goal of a pharmacy benefit manager is just what it implies. For, for insurance companies, you would think inherently they would like somebody to go out and negotiate the best prices for pharmaceuticals as they possibly can. If you're a hospital, you want somebody to go out and negotiate the best pricing for medications as you possibly can. If you're a self-insured employer, you'd like to have somebody you know, do that. If you're a pharmacy, you'd like to have somebody um, negotiate that pricing for you. That's the, the stated goal of a pharmacy benefit manager. But as those pharmacy benefit managers were acquired into bigger organizations, they kind of got away from the simplicity of design and started making it a very opaque industry. And what they do now is they'll say to the insurance company, let me do the negotiation for pricing um, and I'll help you find the best drugs and I'll get you the best prices. But then they go to the brand, the the drug manufacturers and say, look, you know, I can get um, this insurance, big insurance company to add you to their formulary if you're not already, um, but I need the best price. Okay, no big deal. But because I'm doing all this thing, all this extra work, consider me like the doorman at the Red Velvet Rope Club. I need to get, you know, a little bit of juice, you know, in order to let you in that club. And so they created these things called rebates. And so now you have not just the manufacturers giving best prices to the PBM customers, but now they're rebating money on top of that to the PBMs. And then the PBMs play all kinds of games with that money, but for the most part, they just keep it. And so PBMs, as they were originally architected, like the original goal was to serve as a broker, a middleman between insurers, manufacturers. Yeah, between anybody who sells or um, uses drugs um, and to go out and do negotiation because hospital A, you know, you're not going to have a lot of weight dealing with this big brand name manufacturer. But if I take your hospital and all the other hospitals, your insurance company and all the other insurance companies, 
all these um, self-insured big companies and I take all that volume together and go to the manufacturer, I can get a better price. Makes perfect sense. So it's an aggregator. You get leverage over the suppliers. Hey, I'm speaking for all of the people in this area that need to buy drugs. Group buying organization, right? Group purchasing organization, same thing. And then they got acquired by uh, pharmaceutical companies or-, or uh, Not the manufacturers, the insurers. Because the insurers say, look, you're negotiating for us. I'll buy it. And then the insurers also said, okay, um, let's also buy a big retail pharmacy chain. Yeah. And some other insurance companies. So now I've got all that volume and the distribution. So I've got the negotiator, I've got the payer, the insurance company, and I've got the provide the um, providers with the hospitals. And they don't really own hospitals, but they've got the relationship. And I have the retailer to reach the patient. Vertical integration uh, is taking place. Full stack. All the benefits of full stack brought to the pharmaceutical industry. And so, but they got greedy. And in doing so, to stay to support that, they had to make it very opaque. So there's no transparency. You know, it's like if you go to, a, so think about what happens when you're prescribed a drug, right? The doctor says, you need this medication. I have hypothyroidism, right? So I, I need um, Synthroid, where I use the generic first. And what's the next question? What pharmacy do you use? Not how much, what can you afford? What are your options? What pharmacy do you use? And most people, because they're on every corner, if not every other corner, um, there's a major chain pharmacy, right? And so you go and you take your prescription to the pharmacy. You show them your insurance card. Now, do you have any idea how much that costs? Not just to you, but to the insurance company or whoever else is paying for it. Not only do you not know, but the pharmacist doesn't even know. They don't know until they put in the prescription and ring it up, you know, what network it goes through, provide all this stuff. And so everything is incredibly distorted and opaque. What Cost Plus Drugs did, we started this company, Alice, Dr. Alex Osmiansky and myself, really four years ago, but almost four years, but it took three plus of those years just to get all the I's dotted, T's crossed, all the regulatory stuff taken care of. Um, and we launched on January 19th, 2022 on cost And effectively what we say is this, we are going to be transparent. We are going to show you the price that we pay for a medication. We're going to mark it up 15% because we're mail order right now. That's going to change over the next 60 days or so. But because we're mail order right now, we are going to add a $3 pharmacy handling fee to, for our pharmacy partner and $5 for shipping. That's it. And so now, not only do you know what you'll pay for a medication, but the entire industry knows what a medication costs. And because of this transparency, you know, the old sunlight is the best disinfectant really holds true here. People are able to see what they could be paying for any or all of their medications. And now they're starting to look and they're starting to compare their pricing at their local pharmacy to what we charge and it's insane, the differences. You know, I had a friend who brought a, a prescription to me, um, said, can you help me get this medication? Turns out it was generic. He was, they were, the, his local pharmacy, um, a national chain, was going to charge $3,000 for three months. No, $3,000 per month uh, for three months, um, 90, 90 um, units. Our price was $75. Originally, I thought it was 61 plus shipping and handling, so it's going to come out to about $71 with everything. And so 
It's just crazy the pricing distortions that occur. And is the margin in that, is that going back to the pharmacy benefit manager? Is it going back to the payer? Is it to the manufacturer? So with us, with cost plus drugs, we buy directly from the manufacturer. We work completely outside the pharmacy benefit system. You know, there's three big companies that dominate that industry. We work completely outside the big three. Don't deal with them at all. And all they do is talk shit about us constantly, as you might expect. I'm sure they have wonderful lobbying groups, too, that, that are on your ass. Yeah. But yeah, so um, we, we're just completely transparent. And, you know, we're, we're trying to become the reference price list for all things medications. You know, our, our, our goal really is to be the low-cost provider for all medications that we're legally allowed to sell. And, but our, tr- our product, and we talked before about really knowing what business you're in, our product is trust. Because no one trusts anybody but their doctor in the whole healthcare system. You really don't. You know, if you're in the hospital, you just hope to God you trust your nurse and your doctor, and that all works. But you know you're getting slammed everywhere else. You know that you're fighting to get your insurer to pay for whatever it is, you know, and it's just a nonstop battle you do, that we don't trust. And it's just as bad, if not worse, for medications. And so cost plus drugs product is trust. And the beautiful part is, you know, two beautiful parts, actually. The manufacturers really are the victims in all of this. They've been demonized as the, cost of, the cause of high prices. They're not. It's the PBMs. And it would take days to explain all the other games that are played, but I'll give you an example. The PBMs will, you know, talk not only about how they want the lowest price, but they'll go to the manufacturer of the, the drug and say, I need you to price this really, really, really high. And you'll think, well, that's counterintuitive what we're trying to do. it, And then they'll negotiate their best price, right? And they'll go to their partners and say, I got 90% off, right? But then they'll get the rebates back so that they'll take some of that. But it gets even worse. They'll go to other, typically the government, and they'll say, because they know that no one gets to see that 90% off, right? They'll go to the government and say, I got you 30% off. That's insane, right? And then on top of that, they'll still get a rebate. Are you able to, through all this, like, are, um, because one of the problems that exists, and and we've sort of, uh, we've talked about the incentives maybe at an individual level, but then also there's the insurer element of all this. And we don't need to go all the way down the rabbit hole. But to some extent, if it's a $3,000 thing, but I'm not paying for it, it's it's certainly problematic for the overall healthcare system because it's getting billed back to the insurer itself, right? So think about who the insurer's customers are. It's either the government or it's Medicare, right, through Medicare Advantage, or it's your employer, or it's the company that you invest in. Which, which, and so I don't really care about it. I mean, my employer, sure, but like, I don't really care that much about price shopping if I'm only going to have to pay a $5 deductible. So are you guys operating outside of insurers right now? How does that work? So we're working with smaller insurers, not the big ones, right? Because the big ones don't like us. The smaller insurers love us because our pricing is better than theirs. And so they're working through, through us and self-insured corporations absolutely love us. And that's just now starting to click in. So I'll give you an example. I had the Mavs HR um, take the generics that we bought over the last two years and only for ones that cost over $30 because there's so many smaller ones that were taken forever and compare them to the price we would have paid through cost plus drugs. So we, we spent $165,000 on those drugs. Would have cost us $19,000. Yeah. 
Now take that, you know, 400 employees times, you know, a hundred or a thousand, right? Or just, you know, if you're, if, if you're a startup that gets to that 200, 300, 400 employee level where you want to self-insure and you're able to save another million dollars a year, that's cash money. Literally, we think that for VCs, and we're starting to have these conversations, <clears throat> one way to find cash in your portfolio companies is through drugs, but being able to reprice them because that's money you have to spend because otherwise your employees are not going to stay or going to stay. And like three years ago, my price for a family of five was $30,000 a year for insurance. Now we're not going to cover all that because there's still huge expenses that, and you know, in surgeries, et cetera, et cetera, um, that we're not anywhere near. But if 20% of that is medications and, you know, it's $6,000 a year and we can cut that by 50%, that's a huge amount of money. And that's found money for every company. So every, every organization have your HR go to costplusdrugs.com, take your most prescribed generics and look them up you're going to save money. So how do we keep stuff like this from happening? I, I mean, I, I get the feeling you're, you're a uh, well-schooled libertarian in certain respects that you've, you've read your Ayn Rand, you've read your, you know, all this stuff, right? So to some extent, you're enabling the free market to play itself out here. But there are these perverse incentive structures that uh, have allowed things like this to play out. And so let's, let's take cost plus drugs out of the equation to some extent, but think about it as an abstract example. How do you think the incentive structures, uh, have allowed this to happen? Is it, is it vertical integration and acquisitions? And so we need to be more careful about that. No, it's, it's not even that look industries, you know, what time period is a long time? What's transitory, right? You know, is it one year, five year, 10 years, 20 years? Because over 10 years, a lot of shit changes and it changes before your very eyes, but it's like the frog boiling. You don't realize it until it's too late. And it's impossible to get ahead of all of it. You know, the challenge is going to be as a country to figure out where all the incentives are um, so that we figure out how to pay for things. So you've got these new things called specialty drugs. These are the drugs that you see promoted that cost a million or $5 million each. And your first response is, oh my God, that's insane. How can any drug cost a million or $5 million? And the bad first, the bad guy is already immediately the pharmaceutical manufacturer, right? But the reality is most of those drugs, you know, came out of that price because they have to gauge the, they have to model what the market will bear, knowing that the insurers are going to do everything possible not to pay for it. Right. So they have to jack up the price like any product where you have a limited market and a chunk of that market, you know, doesn't pay for it themselves. How do you balance that out? And so there's no way just free market insurance is going to work because there is such um, the technology is changing so quick with AI and everything else that you'll see more and more of these specialty high priced drugs coming out. And the benefit, so if you can keep, you know, is it worth a million dollars to add 10 years to someone's life and keep them out of the hospital so they don't have to take any other medications? Yeah. If it were my life, I'd certainly say it was worth it. If it was yours or anybody I knew or didn't know for that matter. The problem is where's the cost benefit analysis from a financial perspective, right? The insurer that you hope pays for, they don't really benefit from any of that. You know, they're still going to get paid the $500 and $900 a month. And there's no way they're making up for a million dollars. 
And since we all get sick at some point, every single individual pre-Medicare, or at least once they're on Medicare, Medicare Advantage, since that's 50%, the insurers are paying for it somewhere, some, some way at some time, right? But it makes no economic sense. So what they're doing is everything possible to, to say they won't cover these drugs and to force them to the, the special programs that the manufacturers have. And so that's where you start getting these misplaced and distorted incentives because nobody wants to take responsibility for the value that these medications bring. And so, or at least not enough people. So that's where the government's got to step in in a, par- a private-public partnership. So we're starting to have, and this is a 10-year process, you know, hopefully faster, where it's like, look, the government has got to be able to say that we're going to guarantee this drug manufacturer that their market is reached, that if somebody that a doctor prescribes this for and it's legit, then we'll cover it, right? Because we want, it's cheaper to society to pay the million dollars than to have them die in five years and, and you know be sick for the last two of those years and all the healthcare costs associated with it. So we have to start negotiating things between the government, maybe an intermediary like us to help, but at least also with the manufacturer so we can start solving these problems rather than having it like it is for so many other things. Oh, you know, you think you need that surgery or you need that medication? We don't think so. You know, try this instead. Try that instead. That's what helps jack up the pricing. Instead, it should be, look, we estimate the number of potential users for your million-dollar drug to be a million, uh, be a thousand people per year. So that's a billion dollars in revenue if it was paid out total. But typically, you're only going to get 40% of those people paid for. The other 60% are, could benefit but won't. So we'll cut, we'll split the difference. We'll pay you $700 million a year, right? Or $600 million a year. But every patient who needs it gets it. Just one flat price, right? And we'll do that every year, right? And then the next drug and the next drug and the next drug. So that, you know, the, the people who benefit, taxpayers, really get the, the cost savings. And the people who need it, the patients, get the benefit as well. But you're not going to get that type of thinking from the manufacturers because they're going to price it high because they know the way the insurers work. You're not going to get the help from the insurers because you can't model new drugs coming down the path. And not only can you not model new drugs, but when they do come down the path, they're not getting the financial reward for saving these people's lives. They're picking up 900 bucks a month. You know, that does them nothing. And so the only the only payer, payor is the taxpayer, the federal government, who then can say what's in the best economic interest and the best health interest of the country, and that's guaranteeing this manufacturer the drug that all you know your X amount of money so that we can reach all patients. But you know, but that goes to the heart of where are the incentives and how do you figure them out and who does the negotiating? And it, it can't just be free market because there is nobody that is a true beneficiary that is going to be willing to pay for somebody who you're going to add five or 10 years to their lives and keep them out of the hospital. I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire right here on, on a handful of things. So so uh, these are some things you've said in the past. These are some things that uh, I would love to get your opinion on. Um, one, uh, don't follow your passion. Follow your effort. Yeah, because we're all, I, I followed my passion. I still try to be, a, still be trying to be an NBA player. You know, but where you put your effort is typically where you find yourself really being good at something or having a chance to be good at something. And if you have a chance to be good at something and you put in more time and you get good, nobody quits things they're good at, right? And that's really where your best opportunity is to reach your goals. 
How do you tell people, I get this question a lot of like, hey, you know, the, the sort of I want to pick your brain question, right? Like, I'm sure you get it infinitely more uh, than I do. But, you know, someone that's starting from a cold start of something of, hey, I, I'm not really sure. I'm 22. I graduated from a liberal arts school or Indiana or whatever it is, right? And I'm trying to figure out, I want to get into business, this big amorphic topic, right? Yeah, I want to start a business. What do I do? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it's hard, right? Because it's like, well, I... You know, if you started, got to start running ahead and then you'll bump into something and then maybe you'll hate it and then you'll go bump into something else. But how do, how do you give people advice about this? I just tell people, be curious, right? You don't have to have the answers. I went through a bunch of jobs. I, I learned more from where I got fired. You know, I didn't know specifically what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to be in business and start a company at some point. Just try everything. You know, you got nothing to lose. And if you want to start a business, just do your homework, right? Just don't wing it. That's it. It's interesting when people talk about like the bravery of starting a business, but there are all these so safety nets behind starting a business that it's actually such a good way of launching yourself into your career if you have an insight or an idea, right? Well, yeah, but look, you know, David John from Shark Tank calls it the power of broke. When you're broke, I was living with six guys in a three bedroom apartment when I got fired. What the fuck did I have to lose? I couldn't get any broker, <laughs> you know? There was no, there was no wife to leave you, no kids to, you know. I was as downside as the downside could get. Now, wh why can't we get a ranked choice primary process across the board? I wish I knew. I wish I had a solution. People are always like, give me money and go out there and promote it. I, I just don't have the sales pitch. You know, it makes sense. It makes, it makes perfect sense. It's what people want, but it's hard to get entrenched politicians to do the right thing. Is it hard to articulate it and get people to internalize like why that's better? Or is it just the machinery of the political parties? It's just the machinery. If you talk to a, you know, an established politician, you went to Chuck Schumer or Elizabeth Warren, you know, they're going to say, no, we picked the best candidates, right? We don't need more candidates. We, we need more Democrats because power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. You know, why do you think all these politicians and parties for that matter change their positions on a dime? It's just about retaining power. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I, I give the example, you know, talking about primaries where such so few people vote that the extremes have all the impact. You know, the extreme the extremists know from both sides. No, that's when you give money and that's when you get your brethren to vote. And that's, you know, that's how you get power. Well, and for, for people that don't like appreciate this in its nuanced form, like if you appeal very deeply to one person, but he is deplorable, he or she is deplorable to the vast majority, like that person wins because all it takes is you just need to appeal the deepest to the most number of people, even if everyone else hates you. Yeah, particularly in primaries, because if only 15,000 people vote and it's, you know, 6,000 people are, are so committed to this one position that they have. You know, they want everybody to wear upside down hats and they think that's the most important thing ever. Those 6,000 upside um, down hat accolades are, are going to give money and they're going to vote. Whereas if you're in ranked choice and that they may not even have the majority of votes, but they'll win. Right. They have the plurality. Um, but if you have ranked choice, then you can have an unlimited number of candidates and you just whittle them down. And people like the politicians I talk to, well, it's too complicated. I'm like, you know, do you ever have somebody send the partner sends you to the grocery store and they say, you know what, if they have vanilla ice cream, get that. If they don't have vanilla, get chocolate. If they don't have chocolate, get strawberry. They, that's how hard and how difficult it is. And if you look at Alaska and, um, and Maine, 
right? And the two senators from from those states, they're the ones that that just vote their conscience and do and and vote to represent their constituents, you know, because they know they're not going to get primaried because they're ranked choice states. You know, with like complicated rockets are complicated, right? Like drug discovery is complicated. Uh, ballot box ranked choice primary, I don't think is particularly complicated. Yeah. Now you have some strong, you have some strong opinions about the SEC in general and like where it fits. It, I don't know if it's specifically related to crypto or or in general the stance. Like, what, what's your relationship or, or thoughts on the SEC and how that should be remade or rethought? So look at Kim Kardashian getting fined the other day, $1.25 million, right? Whatever it was. The most notorious crypto scammer out there, Kim Kardashian, right? Yeah, right. And so what does Gary Gensler say? Gary Gensler says, well, this is a law known, you know, since 1933 that if you promote a security, you have to disclose how much you got paid. I guarantee you there's not one single person who's ever promoted a stock you know, that ever disclosed how much they got paid, right? And the SEC's done nothing there. But that's not even the most important thing. The most important thing is they could have said, Kim, we would fine you, because, but we know you just don't know this, but we'd like for you to get out and tell everybody. And on our website, we'd like to just have you endorse this page we're putting up to communicate to everybody, this is what you need to do if you're promoting any type of crypto token. Would you do that for us? Sure. That's not what they did. Right. I had somebody, one of my companies, I had them call up the SEC, it was crypto. And I had them go through, disclose the company, disclose that I'm an investor, and just, you know, ask for advice on how to register a token. Because I'm not against registering tokens, right? I don't think that's the problem. And I wanted to know what it took to register. We didn't have a token. We don't have a token yet, but we were considering it. And long story short, they put us, send us, got us to the crypto person. And he re referred us to a um, judgment called the Dow case, the AO case, right? And you can read that, but then his next words were, call a lawyer and get their advice. Call a lawyer and get their advice is the greatest disaster when it comes to entrepreneurship, whether it's crypto or anywhere else, ever created by a government agency. Because there's no startup in the history of startups, great ideas, that first thing they do is call a lawyer. Yeah. None. That is the last thing you tell one of your entrepreneurs to do, call a lawyer. It's setting up perverse incentives for the good actors. Like the good actors are actually being punished because they don't know they need a, a, an SEC lawyer. But what the SEC could do, and this is what pisses me the fuck off more than anything, right? They could be proactive. They could post white line, bright line guidelines. They could say, headline, Post it on their tweet, pin it on their Twitter, right? If you, here's how you register your tokens. And if you do these steps, okay, you pass the first step. Now, there's some libertarian cryptoites that would hate it. Fuck them, right? This would take the risk out because by doing this, you encourage entrepreneurship. By saying you need to get a lawyer, you encourage two things. People, to either were three things, not start the company, move the company to a foreign country, or three, start the company, not even realizing that it's a risk and getting fucked. And they could preempt it like that, but they have no interest in doing it. And that's why the SEC is so fucked up, right? They could just, bam. I mean, this like, you know, you hear the stories all the time about lemonade stands, kids starting lemonade stands. And, um, you know, then there's local... Um, 
local registration and local licenses that they need. And always someone comes out and says, hey, you're supposed to have it, but don't worry about it, right? But then there's there's PR for it. And then typically they get rid of that licensing as it applies to small. The SEC could do that. They choose not to. They choose not to. And that's what's fucked up. And I, I attribute it, you know, it's happened for a long time, but Gary Gensler understands crypto, right? But this is not about crypto. If they were, if you look at what, what's required to register um, a bulletin board stock or an over-the-counter stock, right? Stocks that don't trade on the NASDAQ or the NYSC. It's just a couple pages. And you just provide some financials every year or two or whatever it is. And that's it. Now, there are more scams on those st- in those stocks than there are in crypto, right? You know, because if you're a public stock that gives you a little bit of cachet and people hustle those stocks as much as they do crypto, but it's really easy to register. And if they were proactive and just said, here's a registration form that applies so you can be the equivalent of an over-the-counter stock, if you just fill out this form and you just... um send us this data and, you know, your financials every year. Okay. We, you know, now it, all the fraud things still apply because fraud is fraud, right? But if you do this, we're not going to get you for like, we got Kim Kardashian, right? We're not going to gotcha yet, right? We're not going to say, oh, see, you're a security and you didn't register your security because I guarantee you 99% of the token plays out there would register, you know, now, the SEC would still have to do some education because like bulletin board stocks, those 20,000 bulletin board stocks, because they're registered doesn't mean they're legit, right? It doesn't mean that they're, they're, good, they're, they're good operations, but at least it gets rid of the gotcha. At least it encourages entrepreneurship. At least it, it doesn't require a lawyer before you can start any type of biz, crypto business, right? I mean, because... Here, the difference is if I just do a private startup, I don't need to register anything, even though I might be selling stock in my junior achievement company to my mom, my dad, my aunt, my uncle, right? I'm selling securities, you know, but it's not for much money. I mean, what are they going to do? Shut down junior achievement for selling, you know, stock in the the little companies they create? It's ridiculous. It's counterproductive. It's un-American, right? I get wanting to protect investors, but that's not what you're doing here. All you're doing is preventing entrepreneurship in this space, and you could fix it like that by just posting, here's examples of tokens, register this way, right? And that's it. That is it. They'll take, I'll write it for them. Gary, call me. I'll write it for you. That's good. We'll put this out here as a PSA. Gary Gensler, uh, I'm, sure, uh, I, I, I'm sure he won't take you up on it. It's just so, so counterproductive. And look, you, I mean, have you invested in any crypto companies? Yeah, we, we have as a firm, not me personally. Okay. So you know a lot of them are based outside the United States for this very reason. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's guys, you know, that left the United States to go to Singapore or wherever, the Bahamas and elsewhere because of Gary Gensler. Yeah. Think about that. We're pushing it all offshore. Trillions of dollars of assets are offshore because of Gary Gensler. And all he has to do to fix that is post a couple FAQs, some samples, some introductory videos some how-to videos. And then if somebody doesn't register because they really feel strongly in their heart, they're not a security and they don't need to, those people can get a lawyer and they can fight it out. More power to them. But I don't think the argument really is, are we a security? Does it pass the how we test? That's not the real underpinning of this. 
It's how do you enable entrepreneurs who think that using crypto is a better foundation for whatever it is they're trying to create, and they don't have a problem um, registering? I wouldn't. Yep. No, it makes sense. I have uh, two quick ones for you. Will you get hit? Can I ask about uh, uh, Vincent Wamyamna or whatever? Or is that tampering? Yes, yeah, tampering. Oh, gosh. Yeah, he's a stud, though. He's a stud. He's amazing. He's a freak. Wait, did you actually teach yourself to dunk or physically get yourself to dunk at 37 years old? And how do, how do you even do that? Yes, yeah, tampering. Oh, yeah, gosh. he's a stud, though. He's a stud. He's amazing. He's a, he's a freak. Wait, did yeah. you actually teach yourself to dunk or physically get yourself to dunk at 37 years old? And yeah. how, do, how do you even do that? I've worked out every single day. Are you doing like calf exercises and leg exercises? And I lost weight. I mean, I was ripped. I was ripped because um, that was actually right before, right as broadcast.com where AudioNet was getting going and I had the time, right? So I worked out every day, played basketball every single day. That's all I- We'll talk a full basketball, 10-foot rim. Yeah, full basketball, 10-foot rims. Like I could always touch the rim, right? I just needed to get an extra, you know, eight inches to get the ball above the rim. God bless Mark Cuban. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Great interview. I really appreciate it. So that'll do it for the 37th episode of Cartoon Avatars. Thanks to uh, Mark Cuban for, for joining and uh, being gracious with his time. And thanks to everyone for listening in. Uh, hope everyone has a, uh, has a nice weekend. I myself, are, uh, I, I'm on my way down to uh, Tennessee, Alabama for one of the bigger college football games of my life. So wish me luck by the time you're listening to this. I think most people uh, will know the outcome of the game. So uh, fingers crossed on this one actually going well for me. But hope everyone has a nice weekend and we'll see you next week for episode 38 of Cartoon Avatars. Bye.